Before we begin this podcast episode, on behalf of the Islamic Museum of Australia, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we gather on today, the Bonorong, Boonwurrung and Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation, and pay our respects to Elders past and present. Peace be upon you. I'm Shireen Hassan and welcome to episode one of Untold, a platform for Australian Muslims to share their life stories in their own words and with their own voices. Our first guest is Mustafa Faur, founder and CEO of the Islamic Museum of Australia. Welcome to the show, Mustafa. Wa alaikum salam. Thank you for having me, Shireen. So, Mustafa, let's begin. Let's go back a bit to when you had just finished university. What were your plans? What did you want to do after finishing uni? Yeah, that's an interesting uh, question because I remember my whole life, especially when I was at university, was I just wanted to finish um, and get working. I was very career-inspired. Uh, I uh, wanted to get straight into the workforce. Um, I even remember I was that impatient. I took three years of summer school to finish my degree in three years um, at La Trobe University. So what inspired you to begin your career in banking? Um, I didn't know exactly that I wanted to be a banker. Um, I knew I wanted to get into the business world. I had my brother Ahmed as a mentor. Um, but when I finished my degree, obviously you had your, um, you know, where, where you can go and, and meet the companies that come to the universities and you can apply early to do your graduate program. And I had two opportunities, uh, one where I succeeded with ANZ and another one with uh, Citigroup. And at the time, being uh, a young 18-year-old, I uh, decided to take Citigroup because it was the biggest bank in the world. Um, that was my inspiration and uh, there was no real logic behind it other than you know, it was all over the banking world and everyone wanted to work at Citigroup. So take us through that. What was your experience like? It was incredible. Um, I remember starting uh, part-time while I was finishing off my uh, last semester at university. Um, and I remember the managing director uh, at the time said, the best way to learn the business is by starting right from the bottom. So I did two days a week where I was just filing files for clients, um, learning the back office, learning the operations. And interestingly, when you know the details of things, and I always say this to a lot of people, when you know the rules and the game you're playing, you'll excel in it if you know the rules. Um, so working from back office and understanding that, and then we he transferred me to each division. So I got to see a lot of divisions, got to see how things do, and then at the end you can sort of connect it yourself. So you worked really hard in your 20s and became, mashallah, successful at a very young age. What the most valuable lessons you learned from your 20s you can share with us? As I said, uh, in my 20s, I was very career-inspired, um, you know. Um, faith was there, but it was just the basics uh, that, I ha- that I had to do. But it really was more about, you know, you get into the corporate world and you just want to become, one day you want to become a CEO. Um, so for me, it was that focus. I always wanted to push my boundaries. I wanted to know how hard I could push myself. And very quickly, uh, you know, by 21, 
um, you know, I became a, uh, a wealth manager from going from the back office to becoming an assistant to becoming a wealth manager. And then I was the youngest writer that generated over a million dollars of revenue. And then, um, you know, I got calls from, you know, other financial institutions like Macquarie and UBS. And um, at the time, the banking world, you know, things were going really well. Um, there was a, a lot of money, a lot of money being paid. And, um, you know, and I, I just, I have this philosophy that if an opportunity comes, you should take it because you don't know it's going to come again. Uh, but I did spend about five years with Citigroup and um, then went to UBS and uh, from an American institution that's all about sales and how you market sales to UBS, a European model, which was about risk management and governance. And then ended up at uh, Macquarie, which uh, I, I say is the combination of both the European and American model. So moving overseas with a family is certainly not easy. So you're at the peak of your career and then all of a sudden you have to go overseas to Dubai. Um, what are some tips you'd give to other people looking to move their young families to another country? Yeah, it wasn't uh, an easy decision. Um, all I remember at the time was I had enough of the banking world mm. and I want to change. Um, I was travelling a lot. Uh, my last role at Macquarie, I was looking after some of the Forbes uh, rich. So you were going from Hong Kong to London. I was always on a plane and um, I had a young family. I was married young and it sort of you know, took a little sort of toll on me. Um, so I remember you know, going to my wife, look, I'm sort of you know, done with it. But my career was still excelling. So my, my last role, I was heading up um, you know, the family office for the private bank for Australia and New Zealand. And seeing all the events and all the issues that was happening was uh, my trigger to give back. And that's when sort of my life changed and what mattered to me changed and what, what was important to me changed. It was no longer about this corporate career. It was no longer about you know, how much you want to earn. Because it's funny, when I was 19, I said, if I earned $120,000, that's enough, I'm set. I don't want more than that. Mm. And then you get there. And then you're like, you know what, if I earn $300,000, that's enough. And then you get there. And then you're like, you know what, half a million dollars is good for me. And subhanAllah, so, it just keeps, you know, it's human nature. Uh, but the point of change where it come to me was uh, when I started to see my community impacted with what was happening and the events overseas and the impact it had on Muslim women in Australia and the rise of Islamophobia. And that's how the idea of the museum came about first. So I quit corporate life completely um, to help. And you were there with me in the early days to say, you know what, someone needs to commit to this full time. Um, so it went from that completely. And then all of a sudden we raised the money um, and I got an offer to you know, join um, another sort of international contract as their head of investments. So it was a good switch for me from banking to a corporate. So managing investments of a corporate versus a bank where you manage a number of corporates. So I thought life will slow down. But then again, Allah had different plans and the turn of event was uh, they wanted me to manage their Middle East operations. So. Was that hard to adapt to a completely different country with a family? It wasn't easy, especially for, uh, you know, a risk-averse person like myself. You know, I try to measure all my risks and everything I do, but um, I was up to a stage in my life where it sort of really wasn't a choice. Um, a lot of the things that helped the museum was over there. A lot of the support that I got, the funding, et cetera, was over there. Um, and the company that uh, ended up being the sponsor of the museum, which was probably one of the largest donations, uh, did it subject to me moving over there. So... Um, 
it was more about if I needed to achieve to get this museum built and get what it needs to get to, this is what I had to do. So before we knew it, me and at the time I had uh, three kids, packed our bags and we're off. So tell us more about your greatest passion. So building a museum from the ground up, uh, obviously not something that uh, is an easy task. What was the biggest learning curve during this experience for you? There was so much uh, learning um, learnings we, we we all learnt along the way of uh, building this you know none of us um, had any museum background any art background I was a banker you know but I knew how to put teams together and uh, everyone sort of you know you meet someone they put you on to someone and before we knew it there was you know six of us in you know in my dining room in the house out of uh, Brunswick at the time trying to come up with a business plan of what this uh, museum looks like but but if I was to try to sum up what it was that drove us to achieve this it was more about how much do you really want to achieve it if if the intention is right and our intention was right it was about social cohesion it was about providing a transparent window of islam in a way that was sort of non-intrusive for both muslims and non-muslims about providing an australian muslim identity and the reason was right the intentions were correct and when you have that correct intention you know, you put your faith in God and you just go. And we had many obstacles. There was many opportunities along the way that, you know, I could have just said, you know what, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. Whether it was the fundraising, whether it was putting together the plan, whether it was the time commitment, you know. I remember we were sitting on the, the table and we said, look, this has become too big for any of us to do part-time. And someone had to commit full-time to make this happen or else it wouldn't have happened. So I think the toughest decision was to say, okay, I'm going to quit my job and focus on this full-time to make it happen. But I think it was that decision that really showed our intention was to make the IMA uh, achieve, and God willingly, you know, willing we did. There were some tough times for sure, and I think it was really difficult when we actually started the museum and it had been built, but then just running the museum, the cost of running the museum was not what we, well, not what we expected for sure. But, um, mashallah, just having that faith um, in God, I think, um, yeah, God is through, subhanAllah. But um, so what's next for the IMA? So alhamdulillah, the, the IMA, the team at the IMA, the volunteers, the supporters, the stakeholders, really have made this institution, you know, what it is. We've, we've won a number of awards. Um, we've been recognised by Museums Australia. Um, you know, we have... We've had tens of thousands of children, I think nearly 100,000 visitors through this door that are understanding Islam, the Islamic art, the Islamic architecture. There's so many programs. And when you have an infrastructure that's a, an educational centre, it's very easy to delve off into many things, you know, because you have the infrastructure there. But one thing I give credit to the team is focusing on that mission and vision. And our mission and vision is we are all about social cohesion, education, is power, it's knowledge. And when you're armed with knowledge, you'll know how to navigate and use this. I think I just mentioned that um, earlier. When you know the rules, you know how to play the game. Um, and, th and that's what's important, that we stick to this and we understand what our role is and what we do. Um, where the future goes and what it leads to, you know, God knows best, but um, we do have a business plan. We do have a mission and vision. It's all around education. So um, I can't release any more uh it's a bit confidential, but look out for this space. In the next few years, we do have some big ideas and some big visions coming out of the IMA. But in the shorter term, um, 
we were lucky enough the Australian Federal Government funded us for the um, educational expansion nationally. Wow. Um, we got supported by the educational minister from the success of our educational program in Victoria to roll this out to every school nationally, um, employ state managers in each state for everybody, every school student to really understand the Australian Muslim history, which I think is fantastic and I'm really excited about. Fantastic. And tell us about the Youth Leadership Program that will be starting soon. Yes. Um, so we're piloting in the next, uh, the next term that's coming a probably a groundbreaking program. One thing I noticed working with communities um, here in quite a number of communities is that we, we have great things for the younger kids, you know, whether it's weekend school, Quranic school, Arabic schools. Um, we've got some exciting things for university plus students and adults. But there's a gap and the gap between 14 and 17 year olds. And I, you know, I, I really think that's an important stage of their life. So the IMA has come up with a program called the Youth Leadership um, Program. And what it's doing, it's piloting 20 students to come in to educate them on a Friday night where they come together. Um, they'll have an hour of class which focuses on leadership, providing them with leadership skills, emotional, emotional intelligence, um, different courses. So, And this will run the pilots for nine weeks. Um, and we're hoping that once it's launched, it's a, it's a yearly program. And then after they finish that, they do half an hour of a second language, which is Arabic and Quran. And after that, it's dinner. And then we've set up uh, well, things that I'm excited about. We've set up a basketball ring. Um, you know, uh, we've set up two Xboxes that uh, connect us. So, so the youth can, you know, ping pong. They can just hang out, get to know each other. And it becomes a safe hub for them as well. So it's not only educational and learning, but we've got some uh, exciting things that add on to that. So... Very soon, and I'll, I'll announce this for you, we'll be launching a scholarship program. So we already launched the Patrons Fund that funds up to $10,000 for anyone that wants to advance um, the Australian Muslim connection. And then a scholarship fund to help the less fortunate through university. And we're looking at tying that in. So the successful student potentially might uh, have a scholarship at the end at uh, you know, one of our uh, universities in Australia. Wow, so lots of things happening at the IMA for sure. Thank you so much, Mustafa, for sharing that with us. Hopefully we'll, we'll catch up again in the near future. But uh, thank you for tuning in to episode one of Untold. Listen to new episodes fortnightly across all major podcast streaming platforms or you can read more stories from Australian Muslims now at our Missing Voices exhibition. So that's at the IMA until the 16th of July. And you can also have a look at the Missing Voices exhibition online at islamicmuseum.org.au. So please continue to stay connected with us and join our communities on social media just by searching Islamic Museum of Australia. So, assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Until next time. <laughs>